Hello and welcome to this week's roundtable edition of The Bunker with me, Andrew Harrison. On today's podcast, heatwave or third wave? You might be outside going salmon pink in your shorts, but the Delta variant, the corona variety formerly known as the Indian variant, is on the rise and the supposed great escape of June the 21st is under threat. But why are we focusing on a date when we should be focusing on the worsening COVID figures? And as the rubble settles after twisted fire starter Dominic Cummings blew up the Commons committees last week, the surprise is how little his revelations seem to have mattered. The polls have shifted only marginally. And our special guest is Musa Akwanga, commentator, presenter of the Stadio Football Podcast, author of One of Them, an Eton College memoir, poet and all-round splendid chap. So we're going to seize the moment to talk about football's weirdest year. Get back in your technical area. It's today's Bunker. Welcome to the Bunker. Let's meet the panel. First up, welcome back to writer, actor, singer, broadcaster and cook, Alex Andreo. Hello, Alex. How are you? Hello, Andrea. I'm all right. So are you still in emotional overload from uh, Boris Johnson marrying Carrie Simmons at the weekend? Were you in tears of joy like the whole nation? <laughs> the only person in tears at a Boris Johnson wedding should be the bride. <laughs> by, by all that's right. Did you see that photo of them? Did you see her like like, a, like an extra from The Wicker Man, gazing lovingly at that man-shaped pile of laundry? I mean, how thick or desperate do you have to be to stand there knowing Johnson's history and listen to him vow fidelity? He's probably had mistresses called fidelity. <laughs> I, I, I think I think that's a really that is a that is a power arrangement. That's a power couple, I think. I think that when you marry someone like that, you always think that you're kind of marrying the final form. <laughs> and that he's achieved. Yeah, I really, I really, I really think, I really think that when you when you marry someone like that and you tie yourself to a master, you're really kind of saying he's been on this big emotional spiritual journey. But I am his final resting place, and we're going to go and conquer everything. And frankly, I mean, they're kind of right. I mean, it's grim to say it, but you know, eighty seat majority. I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, Musa, I love your optimism, but <laughs> many have tied themselves to that particular fucking mast. Have at it, <laughs> Alex. Have at it. Do you want to go try your luck in five years? No. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, far bit for me to rain on anybody's wedding day, but my favourite comment on the whole thing was the caption: "When your dad drops you off at Coachella." I thought that said that absolutely. <laughs> oh my god! But meanwhile, in the real world, uh, Alex Lord Gite has just decided that Johnson didn't break the ministerial code when he had his flat done up at vast expense, and then didn't bother to ask where the invoices had come from or who had paid for them. <laughs> is is that the end of that particular story? Is it will be papered over the wallpaper, and where does it leave Lord Gite? Well, it leaves Gite in exactly the position he put himself as sort of Lord Chief Whitewasher. Because that was the job to start with. You know, he knows that two predecessors have had to resign when they suggested, you know, that someone should uh, uh, do X or not do Y, and they had to walk. So he knew the job he was taking. But on the actual story, I mean, can we take a moment here? Apparently, Johnson didn't break the code because there was no evidence of him having seen the invoices or knowing that anyone had paid for them. What is the working theory here? I mean, when when the Prime Minister walks in and finds his flat looking like the set of dynasty, what did he think? That a gang of stenciling gay vandals broke in or or that a giant (laughs) tray of Ferrera Rocher had exploded mysteriously. Who did he think had paid for that? And and now we're told uh, on the day of recording that 
Hancock also didn't break the code, apparently, or rather he broke it, but only a little, so he doesn't have to go now. So it's not so much broken, it's kind of bent and slightly shop-soiled. But it's can- just extraordinary. I mean, in a way, I welcome it because, as I, you know, as I've explained many times on this podcast, it is this overreach that will eventually be their their undoing. The more they do all this outrageous stuff, and the more they feel invulnerable, the more they extend themselves towards a position where they will be vulnerable. Also joining us, we have Atlantic staff writer and a tiny part of North London that will be forever San Francisco, Yasmin Saran. Hello, Yasmin. Hello. I mean, with weather like this, I, I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if you told me that I was back in San Francisco. You yeah, just need a bit of wind later. Which... <laughs> it's, yeah, totally Bay Area. Micro, the microclimate of the Islington, Haringey, Hackney, uh, tri-state area, basically. <laughs> I, I think it takes more than three days for it to be a microclimate, Andrew. It's a nanoclimate. <laughs> Yasmin, uh, unfortunately, sadly, we, we kind of drew lots and you've been nominated Israel desk for this week. Um, the ultra-nationalist Naftali Bennett is seeking to form a unity government with, uh, with a centrist wing of, of Israeli politics in an effort to oust Benjamin Netanyahu from power. We tread into this with great trepidation, but what, what do we know? What exactly does it all mean? So yeah, it's um it's an honor to, to be at, at this desk. Uh, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what my family would think of it, but all right. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's um here's what we do know: if it's successful, it would mean the end of Benjamin Netanyahu's twelve year reign as prime minister, effectively the end of the reign of King Bibi, as, as he is affect, uh, affectionately known. Um, and, and it would be, as you said, a formation of a new government, um, one that. Whether it's a stable one, I don't know, but this is effectively a conclusion that has eluded Israel for for five elections or four elections now, I guess, potentially coming on five. Um, and, and this new government would, would be a pretty broad coalition. As you said, it would be made up of right-wing figures like Naftali Bennett and um, Ayla Shekid, um, as well as more centrist voices like Yair Lapid um, and, and even an Arab party. Um Ram. So, you know, it's a broad church, but it's crucially not one that would include Netanyahu. Um, and, and for those who are keen to see the end of, of Bibi's reign, this is kind of a big moment. But, you know, it's worth mentioning, and I think this is kind of being brought up more and more as, as people kind of look to Naftali Bennett and who he is, that, you know, he, he isn't some kind of dove, you know, he, and nor is he necessarily, you know, the antithesis of Netanyahu. I mean, indeed, he was a former advisor to, to Bibi, and, and like his former boss, you know, he supports settlement expansion, he rejects the two-state solution, um, indeed, he even favors annexation of the West Bank, and, and he's made no secret of his disdain for Palestinians. I think he's, he's famously said, I've killed a lot of Arabs in my time. There's no problem with that. But, you know, for many Israelis, I I don't necessarily think what they're looking for, at least ones who are perhaps cheered by this news, you know, they're not looking for the perfect prime ministerial replacement. Uh, They're they're just looking for an alternative to what they've had for so long. You know, as one um, left-wing Israeli friend told me just today, um, Bennett is far from the ideal candidate, but the alternative is so much worse. In this government, he will be shackled by the center-left parties and be forced to keep the status quo. That might not seem like much, but in these times, it's a huge relief. The operative word here is if, if this happens. Whilst people are cautiously optimistic that this deal will go through, um, I think, you know, if you look at the Israeli newspapers, virtually everyone is saying that Netanyahu is is really not going to go quietly um, or, or give up so easily. And, and if it's the case that this does fall through, then Israel could well be on its way to a fifth election, which in two years, which gosh, I, 
I can't imagine. I mean, the U.S. elections just take so long that, you know, doing mm. it once every four years is is such a major thing. But but five in, in such quick succession is a nightmare. We're very excited to be joined. You heard his voice a little bit earlier through the miracle of time travel, all the way from Berlin by Musa Okwanga, author, musician, co-host of the excellent Stadio Football podcast. Hello, Musa. Welcome to the bunker. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you so much. As a sports writer and a sports podcaster, because it must feel like the job now has kind of become sort of, you know, 50% sport, 50% covering, you know, horrible resurgences of popular racism. I mean, it just seems to be every other sports story is now about racist abuse of a player, you know, racist chance to get games. I mean, your team, Man United, just lost the Europa League. And Marcus Rashford. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks. No, no, it's okay. I'm sorry. We have have to get it in early. I'm sorry. Wow, wow. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going somewhere else with it. I'm not closing. I'm going to extend the hand of friendship here. That's okay, it's fine, joking. Marcus Rashford, who even I like, even as a Liverpool fan, even I like him, he becomes the lightning rod of this idiot rage, even though the guy's been the hero for the past year. Why is football finding it so hard to drive this stuff out? I know it's a vast, vast topic. Well, everyone's at home for starters, so everyone's on social media a bit more, uh, a few bit crankier. And also the thing that really annoys um, racists about black people isn't them being outspoken, just their visibility. So actually, Virgil... Virgil van Dijk, obviously of the Liverpool Parish, um, Virgil van Dijk recorded the highest surge in racist abuse against him just because he was on TV. And what is Virgil van Dijk? He's an extremely handsome, rich, successful footballer who happens to be black or, you know, darker skinned, whatever. So, and that was enough. So really, whether you're making big social statements, Virgil van Dijk's not really outspoken on racial stuff, but if you're just successful and black, that is enough to get them coming for you. And it always has been enough. The only difference now is people have smartphones to register their discontent and their hatred. We've had the, the year of taking the knee. We've had, as I say, Marcus Rashford as, 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 a, as a national hero. Do you think yeah. football is kind of becoming maybe the sort of proving ground for ideas and for change, maybe, that perhaps pop music used to be, when pop music was a mass thing rather than what it is now, which is a collection of micro-genres? I think the thing with pop music as well, let's not forget, it's been absolutely destroyed by internet piracy. Mm. So a traditional bastion that was so well-funded, a working-class bastion of resistance, a lot of it's been damaged, decimated. So yeah, you're right, football has assumed that role, but in a sense, it's always had it. You look at, obviously, Bill Shankly, um, his talk about socialism and, and the need to, like even back to his days at Glen Buck, the need to entertain the people who are out of the mind. So it's almost like football's coming like full circle in the national conscience. I mean, seeing people like, put it this way, it's unthinkable 15 years could have someone as outspoken on politics on Sky as Gary Neville. Mm. It's unbelievable, isn't it? But that's kind of the way that football's almost gone, I think, because footballers feel more empowered now. They've got their own platforms, their own media companies. So it's almost like the leverage they've got is that mm. bit crucially greater, I think. Yeah, but also dragged into it by exactly what we were talking about, the kind of racist abuse and the kind of, you know, almost having politics forced upon them. That that too. But also, Andrew, don't forget that a lot of footballers, you know, they've got a lot of community with fellow athletes. So, Footballers talk to basketball players, talk to tennis players. So actually a lot of them in WhatsApp groups talking about stuff across different sports, but also across borders. So when Ian Wright was on Match of the Day, what was amazing what he did during Black Lives Matter, the height of the protests in the summer, he was shouting out protesters in France and Germany. The mm. names of people killed by police had never been said on sort of English TV before at that scale, that visibility. So, you know, activists here in Germany and France were like, oh my God, like he's clued up on that. So you're seeing a lot of cross-border, cross-sport collaboration that maybe you didn't see 10 years ago, which is really exciting. 
Now, they're calling it Freedom Day, and God knows I wish they wouldn't. The alleged grand reopening date on June 21st is now under threat as the Delta variant increases. It's now responsible for the majority of cases in parts of England and may be driving the surge in Glasgow. Sage's Ravi Gupta said there are signs the UK is entering a third wave. Ministers have quietly dropped messaging about being on track for the reopening. And according to Politico, government officials are saying the chances of a June 21st unlocking are now 50-50. Alex, just under two weeks ago, the news on Delta stroke the Indian variant was, was positive. In fact, vaccines reportedly working well, data looking good on the on the strain's uh, transmissibility. What has changed? Numbers. I mean, it's as simple as that. The larger the sample gets, the clearer a picture you get. So there is now some evidence that a significant proportion of new cases are in people who have already had the first jab. Mm. Um, our numbers on two jabs, so fully vaccinated, are nowhere near high enough, I'm afraid. Israel did not start to reopen until there were over 60-odd percent. And our choice to focus on first vaccination and space the doses much further apart, which paid early dividends, um, may now come back to bite us a little bit because, you know, we, we're up to 75% have had a first vaccine, but below 40% have had both. And had we not made that decision at the start to space the doses out, those two numbers would be a lot closer and we would be much closer to full protection, as it were. Yeah. The decision on the date is going to be made around about June the 14th, i.e. a week before the supposed date when everything, all the kind of mm. restrictions are supposed to come off. You know, so in fact, not quite the night before, as we saw to, towards the end of last year, but pretty kind of close to the wire. Politically, how, how difficult would a, a delay on 21st of June be for Johnson, do you think? I think, um, I think they've already probably decided what they're going to do, or at least a range of options, okay? So they haven't told us yet, but presumably, I mean, I'm hoping that, you know, they've learned something, and they have an internal plan that goes, if these numbers are below X, we do A. If these numbers are above Y, we do B. And the problem is that there's always a lag in the numbers, isn't there? So yesterday we, we got zero deaths, but that zero is a reflection of what we were doing as a country five to eight weeks ago. So we won't know the true reflection, health reflection of what we're doing as a country now until, you know, five, five weeks' time. So they don't know th the value of the, that X and that Y with enough certainty at the moment to decide which part of the plan they're going to do. The worry is that since the government have made exactly the same mistakes this time as they did last autumn and last spring, the worry is they will follow the same part pattern and sort of open but then try to do a series of confusing local measures, which we know will be communicated disastrously and won't work. Do you remember schools opening for one day and then being closed the next? So that's the real worry, actually. This focus on June 21st, we're actually contributing to it ourselves, aren't we, with even talking about it at the moment. Should the focus just come off this this idea of an immovable date? I mean, Johnson himself has been contradicting himself <laughs> by saying that the path's immovable, but we'll be led by science, we'll be led by data, not dates. Well, it's one or the other, isn't it? I yeah. mean, shouldn't the, the decision or the messaging be to just take the effort, the emphasis off this date? Uh, yes, 
I mean, the short answer is yes. Data, not dates, was the buzzword at the beginning. And then they proceeded to make a huge milestone of this approaching date. I understand the difficulty to a certain extent. So I understand that, you know, for business to be ready to reopen, they have to have something to aim towards. You can't just leave people with indefinite lockdown. But at the same time, I think they could have been a lot more open about data beginning to point the opposite way. And I think they have been reticent, which is again a mistake they made the last two times. So when the data started going against them, they did this thing of trying to manage people and massage perceptions and go, yeah, you know, instead of going from actually it doesn't look good, they went to, oh, yeah, it's still looking all right. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll be fine, I think. You know, and then the next day a little more glam and then the next day a little more glam to sort of try and prepare people for the inevitability that it won't be this thing they promised. And I think that is a mistake. That is treating people like children. I'm, I'm starting to get the impression that this is what it's like being at home with uh, Boris Johnson. This is what Carrie Simmons is now getting, getting used to. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. It's going to be hound. But Boris, the kitchen's burnt down. Oh, well, I don't know. Um, Yasmin, uh, aside from the politics, how do you think that the public would react if June the 21st is, is pushed back? I mean... I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, it it comes up obviously in conversation and now it's being widely covered. I think it's like worth stepping back though and kind of refreshing ourselves on what like June 21st even means. So, I mean, as I understand it and correct me if I'm wrong, it means nightclubs reopen, restrictions on large events like festivals are lifted. Same thing with wedding attendance. um, And that, you know, the, the sort of social contact limits that we've had in place, the one meter rule and such, that those are lifted as well. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen polling on this, admittedly. Um, So, you know, I can't speak for the public, but at least on a personal level, you know, I feel like we've come so far and we've reached this point of probably the most freedom that we've experienced since last summer. I mean, on a personal level, if if the 21st has to be pushed off by, by a couple of weeks or whatever... I'm not personally bothered. And I recognize I say that from a bit of privilege. You know, I, I can understand that restaurants and, and the hospitality industry more broadly are keen to kind of get to their full capacity again. But, um, but you know, just as a, as a person who is, you know, very privileged to be in the case of being half vaccinated, you know, I'm still wary of, of kind of being out and about. It's been lovely to go back to restaurants and pubs with friends. But I'd be lying if I said it wasn't a bit wary to kind of be sat indoors and thinking, oh, should I really be here? Maybe I should go take that outdoor seat. You know, we're still not there yet. And I think people know that. And I think you can level with them and not, as Alex said, treat them like children and being like, look, we've made it this far. You can still go out and do a lot of things. We have a lot more than we did before. But to really get over this hump and to overcome this, we need to do this cautiously. And if that means pushing a date back, I mean, gosh, I don't really care. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if if we get to that far, but you know, I, I could see I can understand why people would be frustrated. But again, it comes back to that point that you all were just talking about, which is that, you know, we really shouldn't be pushing this as sort of a a deadline that you're kind of constantly chasing. You know, it it has to get to the circumstances where it's appropriate to sort of reintroduce the, the, the lifting of those kinds of restrictions. And if we're not there yet, we're not there yet. 
Musa, how, how are things in Berlin? I mean, we, we got quite a lot of detail on Germany early on in the pandemic, and then it all sort of fizzled as we kind of got into, you know, concentrating on our own vaccine uh, rollout and lockdowns that were on and off. And, you know, do, do you feel safe or safer at the moment? I do, but I'm lucky because I live in, um, I'm geographically very fortunate. So Berlin is not that many kilometres from the Polish border, and it's surrounded by forests. It's not near other major cities. So it's kind of an island. And so for a city of its size, about three and a half million people, the cases here have been fairly low throughout the pandemic. So we're kind of a bit isolated. It's a happy happy kind of geographical and historical accident. In Germany more broadly, the problem we've had is a bit of gridlock because it's it's a federal system. So you've got all the different states with different COVID restrictions and regulations. And the other problems compounded is that it took a bit longer to get the vaccine delivered. So there was a bit of hesitation and frustration among the general German population. But the really good thing is now they're vaccinating a million people a day. Um, it's super fast now. And so we went from having almost no one new being vaccinated to like a load of us. The short story is that in Berlin this Friday, they're opening up all outdoor dining and shopping without um, the need for a negative COVID test, which is an incredible, like just that, that sounds like, you know, statistically it sounds like a lot, but in yeah. terms of anecdotally how it feels here, honestly, Andrew, there was no sense we were going to have an actual summer. And now, mm. the start of June, we're like, my God, we're going to have three months of summer. We're actually going to have an enjoyable summer, you know, with precautions. And that's all anybody ever asked for, I think. Let's get down to the most yeah. important point. When are the raves starting again? Oh, my God, don't even joke. Well, this is Berlin, so some people, <laughs> I suspect some people never stopped raving. And from the part, the stories I've heard, yeah, you know, it's Berlin, of course. Some people were like, oh, yes. my goodness, all these open spaces, let's go and rave in these open spaces. But there are outdoor events happening again soon. There's going to be DJ events happening. So without wanting to kind of make people sound too envious, because let's respect, of course, the fact that most countries don't have this level of vaccine or any vaccine in some cases. We are just extremely fortunate to be in a country, in a city which has this access. Um, So as long as we're responsible, it should be an enjoyable summer. We saw a lot of very conspicuous anti-vaxxer activity in protests in Germany sort of earlier in the year with with a significant crossover with the the far right where conspiratorialism and extreme politics kind of cross over. Are you still seeing that? Is that that still significant there? They're really trying the conspiracists, but everyone just laughed at them. Um, Mm. Now, the far right have, let's not obviously disregard the far right altogether. The far right have um, about 11, 12% in the national polls. Which is doesn't sound like much, but that's a that's a that's a far right neo Nazi party. One of whose leaders was called a fascist by the German Constitutional Court. So it's not good. And the conspiracy theorists are there. We've got the second highest number of QAnon believers in the world in Germany, which doesn't often make it out of German media, but that's the case here. So we're watching the far right very carefully. The positive thing is that the Green Party, who are kind of like centre, they're kind of a centrist party with progressive elements. Mm. They've done extremely well in the polls during the pandemic. And they're going to be a really, really good competitor for the incumbent Conservative Party at the moment, the next elections in autumn. So politically, Germany has kind of, for now at least, sidelined the worst excesses of the conspiracy, the conspiracy theorists in the far right. Because, and I want to add this point, the scientists, the virologists throughout the entire pandemic have been extremely clear in their messaging. And we, I know we're going to discuss truth later in the podcast, but in terms of striking a blow for truth in quote marks and scientific rigour, the pandemic has ultimately been really, really impressive for that and really important for that in Germany. With your um, sports hat on, the Tokyo yeah. Olympics are still supposed to happen in late July. Disastrous. Uh, Disastrous. Yeah, Disastrous. athletes are really worried about it. 
the, uh, the Japanese populace is enormously worried about it. I'm guessing from your tone of voice, you don't think they should go ahead. Do you think they will go ahead? I think it's a disastrous idea. I'm nervous about the Euros as well, to be honest. Right. I think that Europe's done really, really well, um, considering all the different geographies had to engage with. And the Euros feels such a backward step. Like, why not just have them, have them all in one city? I mean, I mean, I don't think we should have them at all, to be honest. Mm. And I say that as a football fan. I don't know why they're happening. If they were going to happen, have them happen in one city. But this idea of flying all over Europe right now, just when things are under control or getting under control, I, I'm sorry, it feels like that Shakespearean word. It feels like folly, to be honest. Mm, Sheer okay. folly. Yeah. Alex, while we're on travel, uh, the British government does not seem able to make its mind up about uh, foreign holidays for British citizens. A salvation poll found that two thirds of British people think foreign holidays are a bad idea this year. 83% planning staying in the UK. But 17% of them do plan on heading abroad and, and of them more than a third so that when they come home, they're only going to follow some of the government's rules when back in the UK. I mean, where is all this coming from? Is this because we haven't had clear, straightforward messaging? We've had this green, red, amber thing that changes every five minutes? The problem here has been the same problem that the government has had throughout. And it is a problem of their own creation. Okay, so let's not dance around the various satellite mini-issues. At the core of this is the fact that this particular gang, for years, starting with the referendum campaign, gave voice to the notion that since experts don't get everything right all the time, everyone's opinion is equilibrial. They propagated conspiracy theories, which pitted the ignorant against the knowledgeable and popularized the idea that uncivility, belligerence, ignorance, and most of all, kicking anyone suggested you do something, even when that something is clearly for your own benefit that all these things made this country great. And we are now seeing the result. They can't turn around and tell a country that they've been nudging towards a sort of a form of chaos for years. They can't turn around and say, now you have to listen to the experts because these are good ones. Okay, it doesn't work like that. And what you get is people rioting in shopping centers, wearing a V for vendetta mask because they refuse to wear a surgical mask. (laughs) And we saw that. We saw a video of that at the weekend. This is the whirlwind, the whirlwind that they reap, having sown the wind for years Now, stop. Oh, wait, just a minute, Mr. Post-Truth. Dominic Cummings' (laughs) evidence at the Joint Select Committees last week was explosive, seismic, unpredictable, unprecedented. All your favourite superlatives. The seven-hour hearing was Glastonbury for politics junkies. Yet all of Cummings' revelations about Matt Hancock's serial lying, Johnson's love of chaos, because it shows who's in charge, him, and the scandalous dithering and complacency over successive lockdowns seems to have made comparatively little difference to politics in the outside world. In this weekend's opinion polling for The Observer, the Conservatives' lead over Labour fell from 13 points to 6 after the hearing. That's 42% over 36%, although Johnson's personal approval fell from plus 6 to minus 6. But it wasn't a huge and dramatic change. So if a government can be so publicly taken apart by a former advisor and then nothing really happens, what does that mean for future governments and elections? Yasmin, Cummings spent the past five years undermining the value of truth and evidence, and now he's stunned that his own evidence doesn't seem to matter to large numbers of voters. Is it all his own fault? I mean, I, I think you could forgive the, the British public for 
for not really seeing Cummings as exactly, you know, the sort of trustworthy expert witness that, that you expect from <laughs> hearings such as these. I, I mean, what was so astounding to me is that this is a man who helped elect the prime minister that he ended up chastising as being, you know, unfit for the job and, and, you know, the best choice of two bad options and that the British public deserved better. I mean, many of folks who were listening might have agreed with his assessment, but they're not going to soon forget that Boris Johnson is in, is in Downing Street in, in large part because of him and because of his contribution. So, um, you know, whether or not what come, what Cummings said was, was true or, or, you know, whether all of the revelations, I mean, I think not, not all of the revelations were news to us. I, I think it was merely a confirmation of, of, of sort of what, what we all suspected <laughs> that the situation to be like, but, you know, I, I think it's, it's hard to untangle the man from, from the evidence and what he was saying. And, you know, let us not forget that just a year ago he was wearing what I, can only assume was the same shirt he was wearing in that in that hearing um, <laughs> to explain his his trip to Barnard Castle. Yeah. So, you know, what can you do? It's not exactly a hair shirt either. Uh, the, the irony is, I was just as you say it. You know, in our in our favourite poll of the week, the opinion poll for the Observer, uh, it, it, it said that seventy one percent of people don't trust Cummings him personally himself, but sixty percent of them believe that what he said was true. So they they believe him, they just don't trust him, which just seems to be kind of almost the imprimatur of the time. Do you know what I mean? The USA has a grand tradition of hearings that really matter, whereas in ours, people seem to either evade or posture or get off with a slap on the wrist. Um, What did you make of this one, apart from the shirt? Uh, I mean, to be honest, I was on deadline for a story completely unrelated, so I actually didn't tune into most of it. I tuned into about an hour and a half of it on a walk later in the day. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, I think what, what struck me was that, you know, this is, even if, he was saying a lot of what we knew to be true either at the time or after about the government and its failure to act quickly enough and kind of all the internal politics of it that you know this is a guy with an axe to grind and like all the things with you know the 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 spider-man memes and all the just these very random references that Mm. you know made it television gold but at the end of the day it's like this is one of the most important and serious crises that this country has faced in a generation and the the accusations he was leveling were incredibly serious but at the same time given who the person was and just the context and some of the random things that were said it was just hard to take a lot of it seriously so it was yeah it was um unlike any hearing i've i've watched even partially or probably will watch again hopefully Nazarene Malik was writing in The Guardian that if nothing sticks to this government, it's because nobody's making it stick. And a kind of argument is that the truth isn't just isn't the facts. It's the narrative that people can hold in their heads. Is, is this why kind of centrists and progressives and people like us get so frustrated when evidence doesn't you know, blow the government out of the water? You know, here's the evidence. Why won't you convict? Yeah, I mean, I think she's absolutely right there. I mean, that was the central issue with Brexit, wasn't it? I mean, this idea that the pro-Brexiteers really had this narrative that people could latch on to. Whereas those who were in favor of Remain didn't, you know, really offer a compelling counter narrative. They simply, you know, attacked the Brexit narrative and offered all the statistics to sort of, you know, kind of disprove it and stuff like that. I mean, I think you've got a a similar case here where there isn't, you know, the way I see the sort of government narrative being shaped up is that, you know, we face this unprecedented global crisis, but we've come back fighting and now, you know, we're we're leading the world in vaccinations and you can kind of see the narrative writing itself. And um, yeah, I mean, it is, it's kind of astounding to think that given everything we know about the mishandling of this crisis, that there, 
I'm, okay, so I'm a bit skeptical about the English public specifically. Actually, I'm really <laughs> skeptical. I think when we talk about narrative, we presume that people are actually there to be convinced. I don't think they are. I think that this works very well for a lot of people. I think we'll talk about Brexit. And I say that someone that lives in the EU, a lot of people never saw the EU as a grand prize. They never saw the right to travel and live abroad as a grand prize. They felt it was an imposition because they don't, they're, they're English nationalists, a lot of these people. They'd never want to live abroad for an extended period of time. For them, holidays and the odd like holiday home are fine. But Brexit, the EU was an imposition for a lot of these people. And what is not being said enough, quite frankly, is a lot of people are very comfortable. They've got their mortgages, they've got their buy-to-let property, and they can sit back and watch the world burn. And so when Dominic Cummings is on TV talking out of his neck, it's kind of just entertainment for them. This is the thing. There's a lot of people, and I say this as someone like, you know, a lot of my contemporaries from university, some of the biggest Leave voters I know, the biggest Brexiteers, like that demographic of the middle class, upper middle class, living in those like London suburbs, living in the kind of, they're extremely comfortable. And that is a solid, that group of like, aspirational quote mark people i don't know when aspirational came to mean selfish and care about nothing else but they're the aspirational lot they're completely fine this is the thing whatever coming says whatever anyone says like the odd 10 percent fluctuation in the, in the currency doesn't really affect them because they can pay their mortgages and that's it and i'm sorry to sound bleak about this but and i'm not criticizing naming is an amazing commentator i think the group of people that are there to be convinced is radically smaller than centrists think, which is why they're getting so frustrated because they can't work it out. They can't work it out. But that's, that, that is our uh, stock in trade on these podcasts, our uh, wild frustration. Yeah. I'm, I'm not blaming you for it. I'm just saying that like, it's not, it's not as much as your fault as you think because I listen to you guys and I'm like, it's not as much your fault as you think. These are long-term trends that it's hard for you to interrupt. What was your own take on, on coming from your, from your safe distance? Because you know, here it was kind of a mixture of biggest show in town and let's have a look at the pantomime villain again. And the kind of minutiae got a lot more attention than the kind of the broader view that you've just discussed there. I was angry. I was angry, quite frankly, because this man is a pantomime villain. He's not special at all. There's nothing smart about him. He's not a particular genius. We had Steve Hilton, same thing. I think actually for him, the only bleak consolation I take from it was actually the vanity of like, he thought he was the kingmaker. He thought he created Boris Johnson. He thought he would go in there and nuke him. And maybe he was expecting some major resignations, but nothing's really happened. And I think Cummings has realized that actually he's just, um, he's the product of a particular algorithm of history. That's all he is. Every so often, the world throws up a right-wing ideologue like a Tommy Robinson or a a David Starkey or whoever that actor is, I'm not going to name because he'll be gone soon that we can talk about him, you know, and they've thrown up a Steve Hilton and, and a Cummings and the British political system and the English culture throws up these characters every so often. And Cummings thought he was special. He thought he would go and make his testimony and bring the world down. And it just carried on. The most frustrated person in English politics right now is probably Cummings because he thought I've got my bomb and why didn't it go off? I'd like to split the difference between Yasmin and Musa, in that, first of all, I think there's a lot more to come out. Um, and I think you can see that in the government's reaction to Cummings' testimony. They seem to be handling him with absolute kit gloves. Uh, nobody attacked him. No one even mentioned him. And I think that means that the purpose his testimony served was merely to pull his jacket to one side and show the holster. I don't think he expected this to be the big bomb. I think there's much more stuff to come out. But on the second point, and what you were saying, Andrew, and what 
Musa was expecting was expressing frustration about. I think the reason there is no effective attack plan right now on Johnson is because progressives do not understand, and I include myself in this, they do not understand why people like Boris Johnson. I see him as a really obvious shyster, and I cannot understand why other people would like him. And unless I understand why other people like him, then there's no way I can effectively attack him. And so we have this situation, you know, for the for the polls to show significant movement, and they have shown some, but for them to move more significantly, there needs to be push and pull. And at the moment, the alternative is weak. So people are sticking with the choice they made last time, even in the face of serious push. That doesn't mean if the Labour Party go to attack together and presented an alternative with serious pull, things would stay the same. Because what can happen is the headline figure stays the same, but underneath his softer stats about, do you consider him competent? Do you like him running the country? All of this stuff is softening significantly. That means that if Labour can come along and make a proper retail offering that will have serious pull, they can move the polls very significantly over a very short period of time. They just have to understand what the attraction is. If people like Johnson because he's a shyster, then to keep saying he's a shyster is no kind of attack. You're just reinforcing the reason they fucking like him in the first place. Hello, my name is Rachel Hollis and I present Nursing Matters, the podcast from the Royal College of Nursing. When the number of registered nurses falls, mortality rates in healthcare rise. And new data says that the number of nurses joining the register for the first time has fallen. Are we on course for a crisis in nurse staffing? That's Nursing Matters from the Royal College of Nursing. For everyone who cares about nursing and healthcare. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you like football, you'd be hard placed to find a stranger season than the one we've just had. Empty stadiums, COVID isolation, VAR ruining everything, and of course, the disastrous European Super League. It has been a tough old time. So what have we learned and will the game change? Musa, you, you present Stadio, the fantastic football podcast, which covers all footballing matters across the continent. I'm not going to ask you if you've got over the uh, European, the Europa League final. We've dealt, we've dealt with that one. I want to ask <laughs> you instead, you know, as a Man United fan, I want to ask you, I mean, Germany was the first country to allow football again in, in May of last year. Yeah. How do you think this past year is going to change football once this ends? Are we, are we will, will we be able to just you know put it out of memory, get back to the big crowds and the singing and all that? There'll be a lot of that. A lot of people are just relieved. There's a catharsis of getting back to normal. But I think beneath the catharsis, if we talk to take um, Alex's frame of reference, is the underlying factors growing softer. I think that this was a really big year for fan resistance. The resistance to the European Super League was so brutal and so swift that the Glazers, the owners of Manchester United, spoke out more in the last two months than I can remember them speaking in the last 16 years. So corporate boardrooms across Europe were absolutely rattled by the backlash of the European Super League. How that plays out in the long term, I don't know, but there's definitely the energy there. And I've got to say as well, shout out to the German ownership system of having, I think in Germany, 
51 percent of the clubs are owned by by fans right so that meant that the german clubs couldn't go hell for leather into the european super league plans because the fans were really strong so i think well i'm cautiously optimistic about what this means for football in the long term even the fans are back yeah the idea that that kind of a model could ever take hold here is is kind of fanciful isn't it because 51 percent of a european super league candidate team is in the billions i mean you can't raise that from you know, the horse Raffles is and, yeah, the horse yeah, is you, you can't really raise that from sponsored swims. So, like, yeah, where yeah, do we yeah. go? And bearing in mind also that you, Musa, I as a Liverpool fan, Alex is a Spurs fan. We're all kind of we're all guilty men in this, aren't we? Our teams were all involved. No, no, we're definitely not guilty men. <laughs> and you, know, you know, it's funny. I had I had conversations <laughs> with people that ran United podcasts who were like, "If United go into European Secret, I'm done as a United fan." Yeah. And frankly, I would have been too, actually, because I'm like, this is not an entity I recognise. And what's really difficult is United fans have been talking about this for 15 years, 16 years, and we've been ignored. We talked about it at ESPN, podcast, all the rest of it. And I think the European Super League was the first time people were actually like, oh my goodness, this is how disastrous the only structure of United can be for the entire sport. Yeah. So no, well, we've been fighting. And actually, shout out to Spurs, because Spurs Supporters Trust Group put out an incredible statement at the height of all this. And as a Liverpool fan, Andrew, one thing I'll say with you is I wonder, like Jurgen Klopp as a manager, someone who's spoken against the European Super League for so long in this form of ownership, how must he be feeling privately now? Because he was so undermined yes. by a club whose values have been so important. Liverpool's values have been so important in the last few years in terms of reminding us what football really is. Yeah. So I think, you know, rather like to draw an analysis, uh, analogy of what um, Alex said earlier about Cummings, I think this is all still to play out. The European Super League, as it stands, was killed very, very quickly. And Boris Johnson claimed credit for it, despite having had nothing whatsoever to do with it, and by all indications, having supported the Super League in its early days. But, I mean, the kind of the business trajectory towards bigger, more lucrative, and without the risk of financially catastrophic reg- uh, relegation won't go away. Do you think it will resurrect itself, this impulse, in another form? We're already seeing the Champions League get warped for this. Yeah. Of course it will. I think what's going to happen next time is they'll come back with a smarter plan. They'll get a better media narrative going. They'll probably like throw some money at prominent journalists behind the scenes, get some great broadcasters on board and make more of a product. Mm. And they'll try seeding it better because this time all they seem to have was actually just a loan in place. They didn't seem to have much more of a plan than that. But next time, I suppose, they'll build the sort of entertainment arsenal around it and people have to be ready because I don't think this narrative is going away. Entertainment arsenal, what thought? They might at least have a decent logo this time. So if you're if you're if you're placing your money, Musa, on the big footballing development of the next sort of two or three years, what do you think it's likely to be? I think there's going to be a massive power grab of some form or other. I'm not sure what form that takes, but the next financial crash hasn't even come yet in Europe. We're due one of those. So we've got clubs emerging from a pandemic into a financial crash and tighter belts. Um, I don't know where the, the power grab's going to come from, but I can see it happening because the European Super League, basically, if people look at the collapse of it, they're like, well, maybe the fault of it was too bold and too brazen. But a lot of people actually were more keen on it as time went on than than I expected to be. I saw people I respected on social media going, actually, I will go where my club goes. And a smart and cynical operator, the next two or three years, will throw a chunk of cash at a parallel kind of league. And then see what happens. We are in this strange moment, aren't we? When um, you know we've done, we've covered sports washing on the podcast in the past. I know you talk about a lot, a lot about this kind of thing on on, on Stadio. The idea that 
really your only path to success is vast investment from a vast entity, probably a sovereign wealth fund or an oligarch. And we've seen that it worked for certain of the big clubs. And we've also seen massive uh, you know, buyouts of, of clubs by very wealthy individuals and entities where it really hasn't worked. Uh, and particularly in, in, in British football, the idea that um, it's no longer about so much about uh, chasing the talent and the manager. It's about courting the person who can dump a vast, vast fortune in. And, and for that to happen in, in the middle of a financial crash is likely to have an even more distorting effect on the game, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, can, I think you can look at it and expect it maybe to happen because we've seen all the numbers, the Sunday Times, you know, rich list, the amount of people that made astonishing amounts of money during the pandemic in just a couple of years. That money is sitting in those pockets and that money can now bankroll football. And some of it will. I expect some of it to do so. Can I just interject? I don't want to upset you or Andrew because I love you both. But there is a, a sort of hypocrisy there because everyone was up in arms. It's not a real league unless, you know, there's a chance of relegation and uh, it's a closed shop. But it is a closed shop. You know, so as football fans, we have to be honest with ourselves. You know, Manchester City, having fucking billions pumped into them over the last over the last decade, they're not they're not going to enter next year's competition uh, fearing relegation, are they? You know, if, if we're honest, are they? Is that no, going to happen? But that's, not, so, that's so, not the point. No, no that's what, but, yeah, but, yeah. but the point is then you have to take it to its logical conclusion and say you cannot gobble up all this cash. You cannot sign this contract with the devil and then when it comes time to pay up, say, oh, but the football club still belongs to me. What did we think these people were buying with their millions over all these years? Well, you know, on, on fresh air. I've been saying this. I've been saying this for sixteen years, Alex. I've been yeah, saying so, this. I've been saying this. Well, I've been. I've been to be honest. I've been saying this since two thousand and four. But that's the point. If you yeah. want an equal competition, cap fucking spending. Do it now. That there's a bit of wind behind the sails of of uh, a fan power. But the problem is that most fans wouldn't wear that. The problem is that most fans want a Manchester City that someone is pumping billions into. They want sovereign wealth funds building them new stadiums, but they also expect uh, that these people don't own the club. They own the club. You can't have both. That's well, the, the point. to which fans I, are willing to walk away from their teams in that weird few days, I think shows that it's not that pe- people are not just purely in it. Yeah, yeah, but, but, what, I'm, in, in but what I'm saying is let's not just do it for show, yeah? I play a fantasy league every year. We all start with the same amount of points. If I was playing a fantasy league in which I started with 10 points to spend on players and I knew someone else was starting with 200 points to spend on players, it would be no fucking fun to play. Agreed. Because it wouldn't be a real league. Agreed. Agreed. Completely agree. Yasmin, football or soccer is uh, not the most popular sport in America. Were, were you surprised <laughs> at how enveloping an issue the Super League became here with, with even you know Johnson getting involved? I'm going to be completely honest with you, Andrew, despite the fact that I'm ostensibly an Arsenal fan. Um, and that's, that's both because my, my boyfriend is an Arsenal fan, but also because we live about 10 minutes away from the stadium. Um, I, I am not really into sports. And to be honest, had it not been for the politician's intervention, I may not have even paid any notice to, to the European Super League. Um, and, you know, I think it does say something when someone who seems as about disinterested in football as I uh, um, as I am, like Boris Johnson, 
has to say something um, that you realize that it's, it's kind of a big deal and possibly worth paying attention <laughs> to. Um, I, I was surprised, but, but, you know, I think given that, given how quickly like sort of public opinion turned on that issue and, you know, it, it really did seem like virtually every leader on the continent and elsewhere were kind of opposed to it. Uh, I, I wasn't terribly surprised. And, you know, I feel like even if, I mean, my impression is that Boris Johnson does not care about football. Am I wrong in saying that? Boris Johnson doesn't care about anything that isn't Boris Johnson. <laughs> um, okay, good. So I'm not, hopefully I'm not like, you know, offending him and, and his team of choice. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, uh, but was it surprising? No. And I feel like there's this sense that, you know, uh, what I know having lived here a few years is that people take great pride in, in their teams and, and the competition and, you know, to, to have this sort of scheme where, you know, teams just kind of, you know, by virtue of, of, of money or whatever, just get to band together, no matter how bad they are. And, and Arsenal, I'm told, is included in that. Um, <laughs> and, and, and just going to get to do what they want. I mean, I, I think it's pretty easy to, that's probably an easy win for Johnson, a position to take. And, and you, know, you know, I don't think he's had many of those in quite some time. You probably feel the way I did when I went to Canada once for like three days and every single channel was showing the hockey apart from one channel. <laughs> and the one channel that wasn't showing the hockey was showing a talk show. And the subject of the talk show was, do we think about hockey too much in Canada? <laughs> yeah, do, I, you, do you follow any sports that are more American? Yes, we know. Are you just, do they leave you cold? So I, I went to the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, which is like a big football university. Granted, they yeah. weren't very good when I was there. I don't know if that's coincidence or not. But, um, <laughs> but you know, that was such a big part of the culture. So for those four years and those four years alone, I was like, quote unquote, interested and in into football, uh, the American mm. variety. But, you know, I dropped it just as soon as mm. I as I left. So not really. I mean, I'm kind of I was one of those nerdy kids who was like into running. So like I was on the cross country team. And that's pretty much the only and that's kind of, I think, a big part of the reason it's like kind of an individual sport. I don't think I was great at team sports as a kid, so I mm. never. But you know what? I will watch like rugby here when it comes on. Like I've kind of gotten into that. It's like a faster version of football, so I can I can just about manage that. <laughs> well, my my niece is in the states at the moment on a soccer college scholarship because apparently, right. as a as a, a women's sport, it's uh, it's pretty big over there, and there are huge opportunities for talented. Um, football players and she's kicking ass her stats are off the scale and she's being scouted by majors um because the entire time in greece she basically had to play in a men's team um because there, right. there's no such thing as women's football in the small island where i'm from so she had to play with a men's team so she's used to being sort of tackled by <laughs> massive burly guys. And so as soon as she went there and it, suddenly she was on a level playing field in metaphorically as well as literally, she she's really flourished. So are you for, saying for Alex, soccer. Are you saying she's the Ms. Messi of Mykonos? She she's <laughs> absolutely the Messi of Mykonos. She plays that position and she's sort of little, very tricksy a uh, very low center of gravity and scores with, you know, from distance with incredible spin on the ball. That's awesome. Yeah, so shout out to Christina. 
We've come to the end of this week's bonker, and for a change, we have a message from a listener. Listen to this. Patreon backer D. Edgerton Warburton says, At the risk of sounding a bit prickly, I want to push back on some of the comments about animal welfare in Australia. The main reason that Australian farming uses some practices that are not common in the UK is that the climate is completely different, and so is the risk of fly strike. Hence, mulesing is almost universal in Australia, but not in the EU or UK. Secondly, UK sheep are mostly reared for meat and are often slaughtered for eating before they reach sexual maturity. Australian merino sheep are reared for both meat and wool. Wool sheep live for longer, so castration is necessary so that one, farms don't turn into an orgy, and two, the sheep grow bigger, producing more meat and wool. Australian farmers are also managing the risk of fly strike over three seasons of a wool sheep's life rather than just one season of a meat sheep's life. Australian guidance on castration and mulesing refers to pressure from trading partners as a reason to improve animal welfare in this area. And so I think it is important not to have a fixed view of Australian farming practices as barbaric and inhuman. So there you go. It's not just a case of this is terrible and bad. So... Listeners, if you want to respond to any of the topics we talk about on the podcast, or the dailies for that matter, why not back us on Patreon and then message us there? Because, you know, information shared and all that kind of thing. We'll read out the best comments on future editions. Can I make a, can I make a comment on that listener's yeah, sure. comment there? Yeah. So, so it's completely beside the point, I'm afraid, because the Australian deal, its significance is not the minutiae of the actual Australian deal. Its significance is that it's the thin end of the wedge. It's a sort of the entry-level drug in advance of a deal with the USA and Canada. So if you can get people to accept completely free trade, even though it may impact on an industry at home. And if you get them to accept that different countries have different standards of animal welfare, however justified those might be in their local context, then they accept it for all deals. Therefore, Mm. the Australia deal is being struck as a sort of gateway to an, an American deal and a Canada deal it's it's a blueprint. And the government is explicitly referring to it as a blueprint. Are you saying it's a Trojan sheep, Alex? <laughs> I'm saying I fully support sheep's rights to have orgies. Well, you don't get that on the BBC's newscast, <laughs> do you? Now, before we go, we've just got time for our panel's escape routes. What are the TV, films, books, miscellaneous that are taking their minds off politics? Musa, how about yours? <laughs> my books. Sorry, my, my mind is still blown by this conversation. The, the big distraction for me is Kendrick Lamar's most recent album, Damn which for some reason just cuts through all melancholy, all glumness and creates sunshine at all points. So yeah, shout out to Kendrick. That album is still getting me through uh, the bulk of my weeks. Great piece of work. Yasmin, how about you? Um, I'm always bad at this. Any regular listeners will know, but um, something I have been listening to actually, I find that when I, when I work, I either need to listen to like classical music or like music that's not in English. So I can't really keep up with the, um, the language and what with everything going on in Israel and in, in Palestine at the moment, I've been listening more to um, a group called DAM, which I think stands for Da Arabian MCs, but I'm not sure. But it's with like a guy named Tamar Nafar, who's, who's from an Israeli city called Lid um, or Lod, uh, depending on, on how you pronounce it. Anyway, they're amazing. Um, and so, yeah, I've been listening to a lot of very fast um, Arabic rap effectively <laughs> or palestinian rap they're they're a really cool group and, and actually the lead singer taman nafar is um i think he started a film called junction 48 
which is a great film that I haven't actually seen in a while. But if you're keen to listen to them, you may as well watch the film because I think a lot of their music features. Um, so yeah, I've been listening to a lot of them lately. Fantastic. Alex, how about you? So uh, on Monday, I went to the cinema. What? Um, I know. So my first time in 18 months, and uh, regular listeners will know I'm a very avid cinema goer. So that was a huge period of Lent for me. Uh, I, uh, we watched Cruella. It was absolutely delicious. A very, very fun film. Um, it's almost as if Disney having acquired Marvel and having done very well in their sort of crossbreed, um, you know, WandaVision and the, the, those sorts of projects, there's cross-pollination going the other way in that, I mean, Cruella is basically a supervillain origin story. That is entirely how the film is structured. It's structured as a Marvel villain's origin story. And I think that's going to be a very rich vein for them to mine. Emma Stone is superb in it, but I weep for her because as superb as she is, she is erased in every scene by an Emma Thompson that is simply scintillating as the actual villain of the piece. I haven't seen an actor have so much fun with a performance in many, many years, probably since um, uh, uh, Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada, which is actually a very similar um, part in structure and tone. So uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. It was really weird being in a room with strangers, having to sit there for two hours with a mask on. It was an entirely comfortable the whole time but the cinema looked after us very well and I'm very very glad I went back because I realized that watching a film in the cinema is an entirely different experience not because of the size of the screen or the sound but because of the fact that you cannot pause it you cannot nip to the loo you can't just check your phone you know for something you can't uh, look on IMDb uh, at what other film this actor has been in you have to concentrate entirely on the thing in front of you. And that single focus is something that I have missed very, very much. It's an enforced attention machine. Yes. Mm. Well, mine's also a film, the fantastic new Ben Whishaw movie, Surge, in which Ben Whishaw plays a man with the most boring job ever. He just works uh, searching people at Stansted Airport. Not even not even a high-end customs person. All he does is just make sure you haven't got any scissors in his pocket, in your pocket. <laughs> and he is driven to crack by a series of tiny, tiny, tiny things and goes off on an odyssey across North London where he effectively steps outside of civilised boundaries and almost goes prehistoric and loves it and enjoys it. It's not a comedy. It's a thriller. It's quite a dark thriller. It's psychological. It's a bit like if Falling Down with Michael Douglas was a lot less Moni White guy mm. and an awful lot less racist. It would be this film. Uh, it's an astonishing, really powerful piece of work. And it's out streaming now, so I watched it at home. But I didn't find myself looking at IMDb because I was completely smitten and stricken by it. And it's really worth seeing. It's called Surge. It's got Ben Wishaw in it, and it's out now. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Alex Andreo. Thank you. To Yasmin Saran. Thanks for having me. And to our special guest, Musa Okwanga. 
Thank you so much. Great pleasure. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Remember, you can back the Bunker on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast. You will get the podcast early. You will get our splendid merchandise. You'll get access to our live Zooms. One's coming soon. And back is, of course, again, honorary salute on the show. Here are some now. Hello and best wishes from me to Tim Marriott, Mary and Tarquin Shrapnel Carruthers. I think that's not a real name. It's a big thanks from me to David Book, Lewis and David Collins. And finally, best wishes from me to Phil Rollison, Claire Harradine and Reshi Six-String. Try saying that in a hurry. We'll see you all next time. <laughs> the Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Alex Andreu, Yasmin Saran and Musa Rakwanga. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Shrapnel Reese. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.